Well, let's go ahead and get started. First of all, I want to thank you, hearty souls that found the room. I told someone we didn't know it was going to be a mission trip to find, <laughs> find where we were meeting, because this is way back at the back corner. And secondly, uh, this, this is a heavy dose early in the morning, so I'm impressed uh, everyone that showed up for some bioethics. Uh, playing God and other issues, ethical issues and medical missions, something we usually don't think about. But if you are involved in missions to any great degree, especially if you're going long term, these issues are going to hit you square and center uh, soon after you arrive. And I can remember many instances. I remember the time when Rosefin was just coming out and somebody brought us a few vials of Rosefin and we had a discussion about which child's life we were going to save with that Rosefin and who was not going to get the Rosefin and probably die. Those type of issues continually happen in a limited situation where you have uh, not all the resources you need. Uh, let, let's talk about the starting point. It's been a few years ago when I was working on, after I got my degree in bioethics, uh, that I was asked to first speak on this topic. So, of course, the first thing you do is the literature search to find out what's out there. And uh, I found out very quickly that there was a, a lot uh, written on uh, macro allocation and other issues like that, but almost nothing, in fact, uh, really nothing, on what we deal with in missionary medicine. Um, they just did not address the issue. In fact, when I did my, my literature search, the only thing came up was that I was doing a lecture on it. That's the only thing I could find on the Internet, which wasn't... <laughs> too helpful. I searched the Library of Congress. I went through a bunch of the medical sites. Uh, and so we're going to talk about an issue that you're not going to hear much about anywhere else. There's plenty of articles on macro allocation. Uh, we deal with those in the United States. You may have heard of the new uh, Provenja drug for prostate cancer. It's in the news right now. Uh, it can extend the life of somebody with severe metastatic prostate cancer for four months. And it costs $93,000. So, okay, should we be putting $93,000 into a, a dose of this? Or should we helping with an immunization program somewhere around the world? Uh, should Medicare pay for it? That's the big decision right now. It doesn't cure the problem. doesn't prevent the problem. essentially extends your life four months. Uh, High-tech diagnostic cost, uh, you know, from MRIs to CT scanners to what you can do with a, a basic CBC and parasitology overseas. A lot of discussion about those things and about health care systems. Should health care be free? Should we charge something? You'll find a lot uh, about that. Uh, the other thing you'll find a lot of articles about is national corruption, especially overseas. And if you uh, have seen, been over in some of these places, uh, you know. In fact, the new list of the most corrupt countries in the United States came out uh, just recently. And Chad and Bangladesh are tied for first with Burma and Haiti. Some of you I know have been to Haiti, coming in as a close tied second and third. So uh, the, these issues often impact and we're going to talk a little bit about those, what uh, some of the corruption. Uh, the whole debate about prevention versus curative, we don't hear so much about that now as, as I remember when community health was fresh on the scene. And there was a whole group of people saying we should just shut all the mission hospitals 
and go teach better health. It's cheaper, it's less costly, it's, it takes fewer personnel, it's more effective in the long run. Yeah, a lot of good stuff until your child has diabetes and there's no hospital to take care of diabetes, but uh, diabetes or uh, appendicitis or something like that, no one to take care of them. So those debates of justice, macroallocation have been going on for a long time. We'll touch a little bit on them, but... Uh, I thought with my missionary experience and, and training in ethics, this is a topic that I, I want to make very practical because these are decisions you're going to have to deal with in missions, whether you want to or not. And often we're poorly trained in knowing how to deal with them, uh, knowing not to do abortions or physician-assisted suicide or all the other things we talk about in this country is one thing. But these are going to be important daily issues uh, in in uh, in the hospital or clinic or community health program that you're going to deal with. Who gets the oxygen? Uh, do we start opening private clinics at our mission facility? Uh, do we uh, have an ICU in the hospital? You think, well, how does that fill in? You, look there. We'll get there in a moment. Secondly, it's important because it's a testimony to how we handle these issues to other Christians and to non-Christians. How are we in the mission enterprise of representing Jesus Christ himself going to be different in dealing with these issues? And then there's increasing scrutiny by non-Christians, especially funding organizations, government organizations, on how we deal with these issues. So that's, that's kind of our starting point. Let's talk about it. I'm going to focus in more on the mission hospital because that's where a lot of these issues deal uh, come, but it applies broader than that. But let's just look at that institution. What do you have there? You've got very committed staff, people, um, missionary staff that have come halfway around the world, uh, working for a lot less salary than they could be working for, very committed to what they're doing, really wanting to make a difference, willing to, to work long hours. Uh, you tend to have highly trained staff, uh, especially those senior staff, uh, oftentimes much more highly trained, uh, depending on what part of the world you are in, than, than uh, others in medicine. In Africa, that would definitely be true. In other parts of the world, like China and others, it may not. Uh, they're very caring. They're altruistic. They want to do the right thing. They really want to help people. They want to work in underserved areas. These often are areas in, in the where these... <coughs> allocation problems happen that really are, uh, I remember when I went to Africa and first went to Tenwick, we had three doctors and we had a, a drawing population. We were the only hospital for 300,000 people. So I had my 100,000, the other doctor had his 100,000. I mean, it was, you know, and so it was a huge issue when, when there were so few of us. You're seeing very severe pathology. Uh, in many of these instances where people have very severe disease. Uh, you have people that are very, it's very curative capable. Uh, whereas in this country we deal mainly with chronic diseases and especially in Africa and very underserved areas like that, Haiti and other places like that. Many people come in with very acute disease that is very curable if you have the right interventions to help them. And so, uh, you know, you're not taking care of high blood pressure and diabetes and all the things like we do here all day long. You can really make a difference in people's lives. Compared to most of the health care in other, those countries, uh, these mission facilities have above average care, uh, partially because of their dedicated staff. They often have external funding. Uh, money's coming from the U.S., maybe just be in salaries and 
Man, somebody must have lit torches along the hallway here. Everybody's showing up. Um, grab wherever you can. Sit along the wall. There's a couple chairs up here and through to a couple over here for the lucky ones. Um, these facilities tend to be resource rich uh, compared to uh, other groups and paucity of alternatives. I've talked about that, and you're dealing with a high density of people. So that kind of sets where I'm talking about because what I'm saying on, on this really applies mainly to resource poor areas. So let's look at the issues. And many of you, if you've been in ethics courses, know the Georgetown mantra as we talk about in ethics, talking about non-malfeasance. Uh, and we're going to talk some about that at doing no harm. And what does that mean in medical missions? Uh, benevolence, doing the right thing, doing good. We always want to do that uh, for the people that we're taking care of. The issue of autonomy. How do we deal with that in some of these areas where we're working? Where, you know, is it paternalism? Is it patient autonomy? We've been taught very carefully about those things in this country, but the equation changes in many places overseas. And the whole issue of justice, microallocation, who gets the resources, who gets the personnel, what kind of principles can guide us, what about accessibility, who are you going to open your doors to as the, as the missionary doctor, where are you going to focus. So let's, let's start with these topics and begin to work our ways through. First of all, non-malfeasance, doing no harm. One of the great challenges in, in medical missions that you're often asked to do more than you're trained to do. I trained as a family practice doc. I remember uh, when this man came in, somebody had taken a machete. I can't see it too well, and that's probably just good because uh, somebody's taken a machete and slid across the top of his nose, clear down through his Maxilla and, and his whole face is hanging open. I was only doctor hospital. It was uh, on a weekend. The other two docs were gone. I was fairly fresh out of my family practice residency. They didn't let me handle anything like that in my family practice residency. <laughs> and uh, so the first thing I had to do, he was choking on all the bleeding, so I did my first tracheostomy. Uh, on the operating table. Then I went over to the library, now that I had him stabilized, my IV fluids going in, and got the books out and started going through them trying to find a picture that looked like this. You know, it's called cookbook surgery. You know, you go and you... And so I found an orthopedic book that had some fractures that looked like this from traffic accidents. It wasn't machete wounds. And, you know, they said put on arch bars. I didn't know what arch bars were. So I sent the nurses down trying to find arch bars. And about the time they were looking for arch bars, and I was going back in the operating room and brought in his nephew. His nephew, the same guy had gotten and cut in one arm off, was hanging by a strip of tissue, his right hand two or three times through the, his back and a couple times into his skull, no blood pressure, one operating room, and a medical student and me. Boy, did that medical student have an interesting day because that second patient was his. And so <laughs> we had him on a stretcher over in the corner, and we had to get two of the nurses to go give blood so we could you know, try to resuscitate him because we had a walking blood bank. We didn't have the kind we have here. And, uh, and so, you know, they found the arch bars, and, and I'm trying to figure out, you know, and so it was like putting on braces. I'd never done that. You put braces on, and then, you know, didn't have the right instruments, and finally found a trocar off a hemovac and tunneled up and, and, and did a couple of little holes up here in the superorbital ridge and wired his teeth together and then pulled his whole face up. And uh, I wasn't trained to do that. But I was the only guy he had. Uh, 
And so, you know, in Miracle of Miracles, both of them survived. The story didn't end there. After I got him wired up, I'm, you know, helping this student get his amputations finished. And I went over to check the patient. He hadn't woken up yet. Blood pressure was up, and I was concerned. And so I, ex- I did a quick neuro on him uh, again, and here he had a big blown pupil. So I had my first opportunity to do neurosurgery and uh, opened it up and had a big subdural hematoma. So often in these situations, you are called upon. And so what principles guide you in those situations when you don't have the training, you don't have the experience? Uh, the facilities, you deal with a lack of bed space. We, we, when I arrived overseas, we had 185% occupancy in the hospital. You say, now how do you do that? Well, you have two or three patients in bed. One time we had 482 patients in our 135-bed hospital. They were sleeping even under the eaves in the middle of a malaria epidemic. But, but that raised ethical issues because we had Ward C. Ward C was where we put the infectious disease, you know, the kids with measles. You don't want the other kids to get it. And the patients with TB. Now, that's really good. Put measles and TB patients together. And then we had a couple private rooms, that's where we've put our first aid patients. And we're thinking they're up there with the measles and TB. Now, that's not really good. You know, and so how do you deal, do no harm? But here you don't have the facilities or capabilities. Uh, equipment, um, lack of operating space, uh, lack of recovery room. We didn't even have 24-hour electricity. So how do you deal with those issues I know of children that died because, I remember one in particular, I'll never forget, a woman came in, a child with severe croup. We had to do a trach on the kid. And we didn't have, we only had six trained nurses in the whole hospital. We had 125 beds. And so, you know, we taught the mother how to suck the child out. And with a, with a manual pump, she pumped it with her foot on the floor and trained her, and she seemed to how to do it. At night when the nurses, there's only one nurse in the whole hospital, if the child obstructed, then she was taught to, to take care of the child and suck it out. She did fine the first night and the second night. Third night, she fell asleep and the child died. These, these are real issues that will break your heart uh, when you're dealing with them. So lack of equipment, lack of supplies. I remember I had a guy come in. He had a blood pressure of 320 over 220. He was 28. Nice guy, he had all kinds of hemorrhages in the back of his eyes. My first diagnosis of a pheochromocytoma. And uh, we obviously need to do something about it. And we did not have alpha blockers and all the other stuff. And so there was a lack of supplies. We had to send clear back to the U.S. to get what we needed. And uh, I remember he was the first patient we ever had at the hospital that we put an arterial line in as we did his pheochromocytoma. Things went pretty well, got down in there, and it was malignant. So they were mainly having to balk it, and then the electricity went off in the middle of the case. And uh, I can still see the nurse over in the corner of the operating room doing this missionary dance like this for about pumping the vacuum, the suction machine, and we were holding flashlights uh, trying to take care of this guy that was open on the table because of electricity. Support staff, not having enough trained nurses, staffing limitations, things like that, and time. When you're in a situation where there are so few people and so many needs, who gets your time uh, for what illnesses and what surgeries and where do you spend, uh, you know, the, the limited time? We had many of our nurses that made rounds on the wards and diagnosed and treat. Why? Because the doctors could not see every patient every day. 
That would be unheard of in a hospital in this country. It was common then. Um, and then the big question came up, well, you know, we did some building projects and we actually put in an ICU because we had patients that were dying uh, because they weren't getting good enough post-op care with some of these big illnesses we were taking care of. And then we finished the ICU, the buildings there. We'd actually gotten equipment for it. But then the question was, do we take the limited number of nurses we had, we had more by then but still not enough, and put them in an ICU to take care of a few folks And what was that going to do to the care of the many in the hospital? And for a number of years, we didn't open the ICU because we realized that we would save a few and lose more outside the ward. So this do-no-harm issue is a big issue in, in areas where you have limited resources and personnel. So what kind of principles can help guide you through? First of all, you've got to understand your options. And what do I mean by that? Every time you look at these situations, you you try to decide what is the best thing considering where we are and what we're dealing with. Um, You know, if I had a patient come in with the machete wound across the face and one of the more experienced doctors had been there, it would have been wrong for me to try to handle that case when somebody with better surgical experience was available. So the bottom line is you want to get people to take care of, of the patient that have the best ability. There's no referral, no place to send them on our terrible roads, but you do want to give them the best opportunity with the best person, to, uh, best trained person to take care of them. Uh, and, and you deal with things that you didn't normally do. Sorry you can't see the pictures because there's some great medical pathology up there. Um, but if I turn off the lights, everybody will go to sleep. You want to turn off the lights, everybody go to sleep? That's, okay. Somebody hit the lights over there. Just don't snore. I don't mind anything else, uh, but that's uh, not going to help much either. But maybe you can see a little bit. It's a child with a really bad encephalocele. You've probably never seen one of those. We had a whole lot of kids with neural cord defect-type uh, problems. About one out of 100 deliveries had a spina bifida, encephalocele, anencephaly, or whatever. And so one of the issues you look at as a child like this is how much time do we spend taking care of that child? Is that child salvageable? Do we have the expertise to do it? Uh, actually, these children with encephalocele's uh, are quite salvageable, and we would deal with them. But I'll talk about some of the spina bifida issues that we deal with. What are the consequences of doing nothing? See, for that guy with the machete wound, the consequence of doing nothing was he was going to die. So you do the best you can. And so you look at what the consequences are. I remember I had a child, uh, a young boy come in. I was at the hospital on call, and we had a surgeon visiting for the year. Our regular surgeon was on furlough, but he was a very experienced missionary surgeon, been out there for years in other countries. And uh, this young boy came in, a Maasai boy, and uh, he walked in the hospital and said, I got shot with an arrow. And, you know, he just standing there, looked like everybody else. There's a little drop or two of blood on his shirt in his left flank. So I undressed him. He's telling me the story. He was out guarding the sheep. The Maasai came to steal the sheep, and he tried to defend them, and they shot him with an arrow. And I looked at him and got his shirt off, and there was just maybe a little bit of, you know, maybe three-quarters of an inch long slit in his left flank. Well, I've been in Africa long enough to know that wasn't a good sign, even though it didn't look very bad. Took him over and x-rayed him. It looked like somebody had taken a pointer and put it on his x-ray because he had a metal arrowhead 
that was about six inches long in his left flank, maybe five inches long in his left flank. What they did is they made the, the, the metal arrowhead with barbs and a tip on it, and when the arrow hit, the wood would fall off and the arrowhead would just keep going. So I took him to the operating room. He was pretty stable, got the IV going, did a spinal, got him all in there and opened him up. <laughs> Unfortunately, this thing had gone through his left descending colon, through his kidney, and then bared the head and the spine essentially shish kebab the, the whole system together there, and you couldn't pull it back because there were these huge, wicked barbs all down the shaft of the arrow. So I called for the ortho instruments, got the wire cutters out, everything I could find, trying to cut the head off of this uh, you know, arrow so I could get it out. And I, it was hardened steel. They made this thing out of machete uh, head and made the arrow out of it. It was very hard steel. I could not get it cut. So... You know, it was about 9 o'clock at night, and Roland was coming back. About 11, he'd been out to the game park taking some friends there. So I left the kid on the table, packed the wound, made sure he was stable, and waited for Roland to get back. I thought, well, maybe he's got some smart ideas. So he comes rolling in, tired, worn out from his long trip, and I explained the situation, and he kind of said to okay, well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll be up in a minute. So I, about 15 minutes, he came up the hill carrying a pair of Sears bolt cutters out of his toolkit. Let's sterilize these babies up. And so we sterilized them up, went in the operating room, packed the wound, cut the head off, and the rest of it was pretty easy and going ahead. The consequences of doing nothing, would that child would have died. And so you learn to adapt and do those same things. Obligation to seek change. See, in these situations, as a professional, you have an ethical obligation to make it better. And that, first of all, is learning to do more yourself, studying to learn. My mentor, Dr. Ernie Sturry, went out to Kenya after finishing his internship at Gorgas Hospital in Panama and was there for 10 years by himself before the next doctor arrived. Very dedicated, probably the best surgeon I ever worked with in my life. And I've worked with a lot of them. But the reason Ernie was so good, and I saw it even after he'd been on the mission field 30, 40 years, people would come out, an orthopedic surgeon would come out, they'd making rounds, and he'd sit there and say, now tell me how you do this procedure. And uh, I would laugh because they'd be looking at a case of osteomyelitis, and I'd think to myself, Ernie's taken care of more osteomyelitis in the last month than this doctor had seen in the last three years. But Ernie was always learning. Show me a new technique. Show me a new way of handling this. So we have an obligation in these situations where there are not enough expertise and services is to help others to, to learn and, and to teach what we know to others in the hospital. Uh, soon after I arrived in the mission field, I had this kid come in. He was about, I don't know, five or six. He had a hemoglobin of two and a half. He wasn't walking too well. He was sitting in his mother's lap. He was still alive, pale as a ghost. So I started doing this workup on this kid, trying to figure out why he was so anemic. And, you know, he had a uh, microcytic, hypochromic anemia. I got the CBC on him. And, you know, and is he had malaria, no history of malaria. We did a malaria smear. Is he, he got any bleeding anywhere? Well, occasionally he spits out a little bit of blood. Got a chest x-ray, you know, no TB. What's going on with this kid? I couldn't figure out what's going on. Finally, after doing this workup, finally I did the smart thing. I went down and asked Ernie, and I told him about the case, and he just smiled at me and said, uh, get, some, uh, get some sprayable xylocaine for his throat and a, and a tongue blade. I'll show you what the problem is. And so we go up there. I'm thinking, man, what did I miss, you know? And, and, and he lift up the soft palate in the back of this kid's throat, and there's a big old leech hanging in the hypopharynx. 
Chalamos die. They, they actually have these hooks, and then they secrete an anticoagulant, and the child just begins to ooze and bleed. And this child almost died from a leech. Now, they didn't cover that in residency. I don't know what happened. but And so, but that type of thing of passing on knowledge and learning from each other is one of the obligations we have to, to do the right thing. Uh, to improve your equipment, not only your training. And, uh, you know, one of the big projects I was involved in with Timwick was getting electricity for the hospital, which meant building a hydroelectric plant, not something... I have learned to do anywhere else, but you realize very quickly that the ethical thing of doing the right thing is striving to make it better. Uh, training others and being involved with your staff, starting training schools, and that's really where medical missions is these days, is starting others. And then looking at the, the risk and benefits of, of the whole case, staying within reasonable limits uh, and making sure that you're not doing things as a cowboy or a cowgirl. I mentioned children with spina bifida, and we had a lot of kids born with spina bifida. And, that you know, it's a, a significant operation to close one of those. But after time, we learned that children that were paraplegic from their spina bifida did not survive when you sent them home. Even if you operated, the operation went well, everything healed, they could not survive in the village. And so it seems kind of heartless and cruel, but we would not operate on those children. If the children were not paralyzed, we would operate and close the spina bifida. If not, we would explain the situation to the parents and send the child home. Because the bottom line is we would spend a lot of money and a lot of time doing something that would not make a difference and the child would die anyway. And what the parents would end up with a huge bill, often having to sell a number of cows to take care of that hospital bill and impoverish them for a situation where the child was going to die. Now, you wouldn't think of doing that in this country. That was the situation in a mission hospital because the benefit really was not there for the child. They were going to die 100% across the board. The parents could not take care of them in the village. The thing would get infected, uh, and they would end up dying from uh, either the wound or something else that would happen. Shorten, uh, looking at... Um, Chance of success wouldn't take out a big hepatoma like this, this coming through this woman's abdomen. What difference is that going to make? Uh, and then what you can manage and support. I remember somebody offered to give us a CT scanner at our mission hospital. Isn't that wonderful? Wouldn't it be great to have a CT scanner? Except how are you going to support it? How, how, who's going to maintain it? How costly is it? And so you have to look at these things and say, yes, even when we're trying to do good, we can end up doing harm. And uh, those are important issues. Beneficence, competing goods. Uh, it's not only the, the bad things, but also competing goods, the greater good. Cure versus prevention. How much time do you put into the curative and how much do you put in the prevention? I remember we had the long discussion. We only had six nurses at the hospital at that time and knew we needed to do something prevention and made the huge step. We were going to take one of the nurses out of the hospital completely and have them involved in preventive work. And there was a little discussion in the hospital because the other nurses are going to have to work a lot harder, and they're already working too hard. And so, but we had these competing goods that you have to deal with. Uh, being a policeman versus being a missionary. I didn't know when I went to Kenya that I was going to be a policeman. But we had a huge problem at the hospital with people stealing supplies and equipment and blankets and sheets and you know. And I remember the first time that in the past the the situation had been if you get Caught stealing, you just get fired, went home and enjoyed it. Whatever you had gotten, you could go home and enjoy. 
And so I remember the first time agonizing over the decision did we set an example in actually prosecuting one of the staff. And I took over a year going to the police station and to the court and, and actually giving testimony and finally sending this guy off to prison for 14 months. He had sold, stolen the equivalent of about 25 years of salary from the hospital, embezzled it. He was a fairly educated guy and worked in our business office. And I remember people upset with me because he just married, his wife had just had a baby, and here I sent him to prison. Missionaries should be doing that. Well, you don't, you got to keep the hospital open, and if you, if you keep having the stealing and things, then you aren't going to have enough money to keep it open, but, and that's a whole nother surgery. Not a whole nother idea, surgery, yeah. Whole nother, uh, whole nother issue, because the, the interesting part of that story, and I don't have time to tell it, is I saw him coming down the road after he got out of prison, and I picked him up and uh, to talk to him because I, I love this guy. I mean, he'd been a good friend, but he had embezzled this money. And he sat there in my car and thanked me for putting him in prison because that's where he came to Christ. And uh, But those are the agonies that you deal with in, in, in these type of situations. Paying staff through gratis treatment. If you see this woman in her foot, that was a patient in, in uh, Honduras and I was down on a global health outreach team with our team. And one afternoon, we, we didn't have clinic. We went out to the community to see people that could not get to the clinic. And this woman was in her, her name is um, Dona Anita. I'll never forget her. And I walked into her house. They asked me to go see her. She was laying on her bed uh, on the couch in the living room. They didn't have her in the bedroom. And beside her was her coffin. They had already bought the coffin, and it was standing up against the wall. And she was waiting to die. She had gangrene of her forefoot. And I asked her, why haven't you gone to the hospital? It was a good ways to the hospital. And she looked at me and said, I couldn't, can't afford it. So she was just there to die. The hospital she's talking about was a former mission hospital that now was run in the country. And so you're going, wait a minute, you know, Yes, you have to keep the hospital doors open. You have to charge something to pay your salary. But what about what about taking care of those who cannot afford? Would Christ pass on the other side of the street and a woman like this? And we took up a collection center to the hospital. So those issues come up. How do you deal with the balance of keeping the hospital doors open and taking care of those who can't pay while well, at the same time and that is a competing good? Uh, may, many not so sick and a few of the sickest, and we've kind of talked about that. Do you spend your time taking care of the dramatic cases when many of the, you know, should you do heart surgery at your hospital in the bush? Now, there may be a time when that comes and you can do it, but you may be spending your time doing something to save a few people when they're, that sounds like utilitarian ethics, doesn't it? We're going to talk about that. What is the place of utilitarian ethics in medical missions? Lesser of two evils, the better. Bribe versus no medicines and supplies. The government, you, you've been waiting for these supplies and equipment. They've arrived at customs, and um, they won't release them unless you give them a bribe. And they stay there six months. You think you can wait them out. Then a year. Then you're beginning to think, well, all the medicines aren't going to be good anyway because they've been sitting in the heat and baking. So what do you do? Give the bribe? Save people's lives? That's a hard one. I didn't tell I was going to give you universal precautions. Remember when AIDS came to Africa? 
And uh, we didn't know a lot about it back in the 80s, but we knew that uh, you could die <laughs> from it if you got it. I remember we had a pediatrician come out and a woman uh, who came out. And the first day she walked up to the hospital, she was double-gloved, had on a full face mask and a gown. And I had to gently pull her aside and say, I don't think this is really a good idea. Well, you know, there's AIDS up here, you know, HIV. I know, I know that. But you see, we cannot provide that type of protection for all our staff. So when you come up looking like Darth Vader, this is going to cause a huge morale problem in the hospital from other staff worried about why aren't we doing this for them. So you have, how do you do that? I mean, you have to, what you would do here to protect yourself. You cannot do there because you can't afford it. So you have to find that reasonable. So you have the lesser of two evils. How, how do you deal with those issues? Doctor being away from the hospital versus burnout. You've got so few doctors, but you're about to kill them. You've got to send them on vacation. What's going to happen while they're gone? Not enough people are going to be, not as many people are going to be seen. All of these things. So let's talk about the principles of utility. We talk about utilitarian ethics as always a bad thing, and I want to tell you that it's not. Now, get me straight here. I don't want you walking out saying, oh, yeah, Dr. Stevens is, you know, big into utilitarian ethics. But there are principles of when utilitarian ethics should be used and how should they be used. The first principle is this, when there are no moral absolutes for or against an action. Sometimes there are clear moral absolutes, and in those situations, we should not be applying utilitarian ethics. Let me give you an example. Um, we had rabies in our area. I remember the first girl, she was about 14 years old after I got to the mission field, that came in that had rabies. Terrible disease. And it's a 100% fatality rate. Now, she was, we were going to do everything we could to make her comfortable, but this was not going to be a pretty death. Now, utilitarian ethics on their own would say, well, why don't you just put her out of her misery? You aren't going to save her anyway. There's no way she's going to live, so let's just overdose her and put her out of her misery. But you see, there is a moral absolute for us as healthcare professionals that we do not kill people. All right? So in that situation, even though utilitarianism would say that would be something you could do, the moral absolute would say no. When you know your moral duty, but you're not sure how to fulfill it. You know your moral duty, help the sick, take care of those that are suffering, but you're not sure how to fulfill it. There's no moral absolute, now what do you do? When there's a conflict between two moral duties and both cannot be fulfilled. I have two patients, I've got one operating room, and I'm the only surgeon. And one of them has a 10% chance of survival, in my estimation. The other one has a 70% chance of survival if I operate. Who goes to the operating room first? Yeah. What if the 70% is 88 years old and the 10% is 21? It gets a little more complicated, doesn't it? But these, these type of things where you, you've got two moral duties, both cannot be fulfilled, and you're sitting there looking at what can we do the best for? When you must prioritize your duties, which is more important? I told you about starting community health, and we realized at that time at the hospital, 50% of the deaths and 50% of the patients that came into the hospital came into preventable diseases. So we could do that curative work for the rest of our life, and they'd just still keep coming. 
unless we got out and taught clean water and parasite prevention and treating malaria in the community and oral rehydration and all those things. So we had to sit down and prioritize our duties and say, yes, we have these duties in the short term, but we also even have bigger duties in the long term. We need to prioritize that duty. And when there are limited resources, and that's often the case in a mission facility, when you have few too staff and too much to do, how you handle it. Let's talk about autonomy. And first of all, we'll talk about paternalism. You know, there's a desire to help and advise and protect those who are neglected. Paternalism is not all bad. Uh, it's done out of the right, if it's done out of the right motives, uh, you really want to help people and do what's best for them. In our country, we talk a lot about autonomy. You need to give informed consent and explain to people and let them make the decision. Uh, but what happens when you get into cultures where uh, there's a different worldview? Spirits have done this to me. You can explain all the thing you want about, you know, this is a bacterial infection and whatever and whatever, but evil spirits have done that to me. And then there's a different worth between men and women. And you have a child that comes in that uh, has uh, severe trauma to a leg, a little girl. And you go to the parents and say, uh, you know, we're going to need to amputate, but I'm glad to tell you it's going to save her life. And they say, no, we don't want you to do it. Why? Because in our culture, if a woman cannot carry wood and water from the river, they'll never be married. What are we going to do with this girl? Just let her die. A little more paternalism comes in versus autonomy. When there's difference in intelligence, ability to grasp new concepts, can the patient understand the options? You'll be working in areas where that may not be the case. The education level, how well they can read and write and understand anatomy and health and disease. And they'll have a lot of beliefs that can affect their decisions about what should be done. Your communication ability. You may not understand the language well enough or have someone there that can clearly explain what's going on. So lots of issues. Uh, you want to be beneficent, but it can be, so what are the principles? First of all, you get the best informed consent you can. You explain it the best you can, and, and, uh, and it may just be a mark on a piece of paper because they can't even sign their name. But uh, in the way they can understand it, use examples. Uh, you volunteer accountability. In situations where there is not good accountability from the patient for the healthcare professional, it's even more important to have accountability in other ways. What do I mean by that? Well, the reason I'm saying that is because unmonitored autonomy is dangerous. Write that down. Unmonitored autonomy is dangerous. And one of the dangers in missionary medicine is becoming a cowboy or a cowgirl. Because there's no malpractice, there's no, and you're out there, and you can just get into all sorts of things. And I've seen, I could tell you stories of people who came out to help us who kind of had that attitude of, you know, well, yeah, I'll just do that when there were better options. So set up systems of measuring activities and outcomes uh, with internal reviews. What are we doing in our C-section rate? Let's collect statistics, do an annual report. What's our mortality rates? How are we doing? Ways that you monitor yourself. Uh, measuring results, having peer review, having M&M conference. You say, well, we're so busy. We're a mission facility. But even in those situations, if you're going to get better at what you do and be accountable to each other, you have to put systems into place to make sure that you're uh, being accountable to each other. And that's the only way you're going to get better. 
Compare yourself to other mission hospitals and other facilities in the same country and how are we doing compared to them. So you're looking at this on the macro level and then when you have decisions where the patient cannot really be autonomous, making sure you're getting other healthcare professionals involved in those decisions if there's any doubt about what should be done. Uh, and then external review, uh, having a group come in and look at your hospital. We have the Center for Medical Missions at uh, Christian Medical and Dental Associations. They'll come in and, and assess a mission hospital, help them see how they're doing. They have a broader view of many places around the world and help them look at some of these things or get a community feedback or do a survey. All these things to help hold you because you want to be accountable and, and make yourself accountable even in these situations that are very difficult. Let's talk about justice. And uh, this is where it really gets tough because these macro, micro allocation decisions are very, very difficult in how you handle them. Uh, it's, uh, you can't see those well enough. Fell up in the upper top corner. He's got his bottom lift bitten off. And that's what you do to your opponent when you're fighting in Kenya. You want to, to, to mutilate them to show them that you won, so you bite their lower lip off of their earlobes. Um, so people come in with their earlobes in their hands saying, can you please put this back on? Well, how long is that going to take and what difference is that going to really make? Uh, lips, one thing, earlobes, another. So how do you deal with those things? Because there's a lot of factors, cultural and other things, impacting them. Uh, you know, managed care started on the mission field long before it started in the United States. Because managed care means unlimited needs and limited resources. And you have to make decisions on who's what going to get what and how, uh, who gets the oxygen. I remember when I first arrived at the mission field, we had tanked oxygen. It came 50 miles away over terrible roads. It was at least a three-hour drive if it wasn't raining and mud. And so we had a limited supply. So we would sit there and decide which child was going to get the oxygen because we only had so much before we could go back to town and get some more with the trip. And so who was going to get that? We had one generator at night, um, and, and we ran it to run the operating room lights, and it could power one incubator. Now, you can put three babies in one incubator, but then what do you do? It's not the best thing to put three children in one incubator, but if that's the only place they're going to stay warm and get the oxygen they need, so who's going to get the incubator? A young couple comes in. They've not had any children for three years, and they want an infertility workup. Now, you've got busy people in this hospital. People are dying surgeries to do. So do you do that infertility workup? Well, would it make a difference to know that if she doesn't get pregnant in another year, he's going to send her home, get back his dowry, and her life is over. She's likely to commit suicide and kill herself. Well, maybe I should do that infertility workup. Yeah, these are the issues that you're dealing with, and how much time do you spend with people? What about accessibility? Um, you're very good at what you do. You are going to be wherever you go. So the business people from the town that's 75 or 100 miles away hear how good your facility is, and so they start coming down, and they want you to take care of them, and they'll pay cash. They'll pay whatever you ask them to pay. But they really don't want to stand in that line outside a clinic all day like everyone else is to see you. So could you set up a private clinic? In fact, they'll pay you five times as much. And then if they need to be admitted at the hospital, they don't want to be on that general ward. They want a private room. Should you do that? Should your mission hospital be moving in that direction? These are all micro-allocation issues that you're going to have to deal with. Or, well, maybe sliding skills is one way to handle that. 
and we'll have different charges for different economic capabilities. Or the local member of parliament comes in, and he definitely don't want to be at the end of the line. He wants you to take care of him right now. How are you going to handle that? Uh, all these are huge issues in missionary medicine. What are some of the principles? Uh, fair and impartial as the situation allows. <laughs> you better not send that member of parliament out and say you're not going to take care of him. He has to get in the back of the line. That's probably not going to work well for your longevity in the country. Uh, as the situation allows, but you want to be as fair and impartial. Best as you can do for the most people with the resources you have. Another principle. I remember one of my friends from residency went over when we were in residency together, and he got the pediatric ward, the hardest place to work in the hospital. And I remember one day walking down the hill with him and tears pouring down his face. He had lost three children that day, and he was just distraught. Half the kids in the pediatric ward should have been in an ICU. And I remember saying to him, Mike, you've got to do the best you can for the most people. Realize if you weren't here, they wouldn't have anything. This isn't America. And if you don't understand that, you'll go nuts in some of these situations. Uh, you've got to remember that you have to use disaster and uh, both uh, disaster triage ethical principles. And you may not be familiar with those. But in, in a civilian disaster, when you're dealing with multiple casualties, what do you do? You actually divide people up into three groups. You divide the people up, and first of all, the group that are so severely injured, they're likely going to die. And you set them aside and make them comfortable. Then you have those in the middle who are salvageable but aren't going to take an enormous amount of effort. And then you have those that are not injured as badly who can be delayed in taking care of their treatment. And you put your focus on those in the middle. Now, that sounds heartless and cruel, but if you have limited resources and limited personnel, that's what you have to do. And in some mission situations, that will be the situation where you are, to say, yes, there's a 5 or 10% chance we could save this life, but the amount of work and supplies and equipment and our experience shows us that the chances are very slim and we're not going to do anything but make this person comfortable. Let's talk about virtue ethics. The quality of being morally good and righteous is probably the most important thing you're going to take to the mission field because these are agonizing decisions, and I cannot begin to give you principles enough to deal with all of them. But it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. You do that and you'll be an ethical missionary, doctor, nurse, or whatever you are. And you struggle, and you ask for advice, and you seek the Lord's guidance, and you try to make decisions that would honor Him. The virtuous person makes right decisions. Other recommendations in a facility, it's good, even the busyness, to have an ethics committee that's representative of all different levels of staff uh, to look at to set principles, not so much look at individual cases, but set protocols and write principles and guidelines. Communicate to all levels of staff why you're doing what you're doing. Mechanism for review of specific problems and periodic review and upgrading to, as your capabilities increase. But these are important issues in the testimony area as well as in the ethical area, and you want everybody involved. But let justice roll down like a river, righteousness like a never-filling stream. I, never, I didn't tell you this was going to be an easy talk, and it's not, because these are hard issues to wrestle with. But having some principles 
to deal with them, will help you make them in a righteous way to do the best you can. And most, and very important, I shouldn't say most important, but very importantly, to help you keep your balance in these very, very difficult situations. Got a few minutes for questions. Any questions? Somebody hit the lights over there. Let's wake a few people up. Comments? Yes. There were principles that you found on, on how to deal with that or ways to, to maybe uh, prevent some of those. Uh, there's no, there's no, no, nothing harder to deal with than somebody who thinks they're right. And, and from, <laughs> from your perspective, they were. Right. Sure absolutely. You know, that's what I'm saying. Right. They, they can get on the bandwagon. I think part of that, you know, it's not totally preventable, and you know that, and I know that. But it's, it's orientation, helping people understand the system before they're getting into it, a good briefing. And that's so difficult with all the pressures and time uh, that you're dealing with. Uh, good explanations of specific situations, uh, you know, a willingness to learn and reconsider things. Maybe, you know, one of the big things you want to avoid is you've gotten blind to something because you've been there so long. And maybe there's something I can learn from this. But at the same time, um, you know, I remember one of my – was godly docs, surgeon used to come to Timwick every year, and he'd bring two or three students and a resident with them, pay their way, and bring them over for a month and mentor them. And I remember the first day he walked up to me, and I met him, and he said, Dave, I'm just so glad to be here, and I want you to know something. I'm not here to tell you how to do your job. I never had anybody else come that said that because everybody thinks they can take American medicine and apply it in these situations one of the biggest challenges you're going to face if you end up on the mission field is that a lot of what you've learned in, in medicine is obviously going to be different there, but a lot of you've learned in what is appropriate in American medical delivery is different in the situation where you are. And learning that new mindset, having a mentor, someone who can help you work through this, somebody who's been there longer, is going to be very important. You know, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it, Right. And, uh, but I want to encourage you to say this. God will be with you. He's called you. He'll help you through these difficult decisions. He will teach you through them. And he'll draw you closer to himself as you continue to serve him. So I want to send you out with that word of encouragement. Yes, these are difficult issues, uh, but God can help you through them. I think we're, I'll be here for questions afterwards. Thanks for coming. And God bless. <laughs>